Hello, my name is John Hendren, and welcome to episode number seven of BachCast. So the focus for this episode is Brandenburg Concerto number four by Bach, BWV 1049. However, the excerpt we just heard is an, another piece by Bach known as a fugue in G minor, uh, BWV 1026, for uh, violin and harpsichord or keyboard. And the reason I started with this this time, incidentally, this is performed by Reinhard Goebel. Uh, it comes from... Uh, there's actually been a couple of recordings that that has appeared with his ensemble Musica Antigua Köln, with I believe Hank Bowman on the harpsichord. Um, this came from a reissue that I purchased that included the six Brandenburg concertos plus a lot of Bach chamber music, and it had previously been released on a chamber music um, uh, Bach chamber music CD set and record set. Um, I believe in the early 1980s by Musica Antigua. So why feature it besides that it came on a reissue alongside the Brandenburg Concertos? Because Brandenburg Concerto number four is kind of an interesting little uh, concerto. Um, you'll hear it sometimes played with two flutes and violin, although in historically performed performances, you'll always hear it with two recorders. Uh, the recorder, incidentally, was a flute instrument, um, also known as the flute à bec. Uh, the wind flute, um, but it was played um, parallel to the body, uh, opposed to the transversier flute, the one that you played against the body. Um, and recorders were gained a lot of popularity during this time in Germany and kind of became the place in the world where repertoire and interest in recorders kind of remained. Uh, to this day, where you'll find that there's there's still manufacturers of, of fine recorders made in Germany um, because of that kind of cultural interest. And recorders came in all different kinds of sizes. But the funny thing is Bach did not call for um, uh, recorders in the score. In, instead, he calls them flauti di echo, or echo flutes. And we're not exactly sure what he means by that because there was not a specific instrument known as the echo flute. And this is in one of those cases where um, there's been some speculation that Bach may have been telling some stories in these concertos. And in this one in particular, 
it stands out to me. And these stories um, were first published um, kind of in a raw form by the uh, recorder player Philip Pickett. Philip Pickett performed with the English Concert. He's a, a British trumpet and recorder player. He recorded uh, alongside uh, Trevor Pinnock with uh, Brandenburger Number Number Four, with the English Concert. And some years later, he, with his own ensemble, the New London Consort, he uh, did his his own reading of these uh, six concertos. Uh, incidentally. Uh, the most interesting part of his recording was not the actual recording. It's, it's not bad, but the, the tempos are a little slow for my taste. But the booklet notes were kind of this revelatory, uh, very interesting um, thing to come along with the CDs. Because inside, he, he basically posits that Bach is making some allegorical uh, statements based on... Um, stories that he believes are attached to the concertos. And in, in particular, number four, he recalls a story of Apollo being challenged to show off with tricks. For instance, Apollo was asked to, um, uh, to play upside down. Um, and I'm not sure what Apollo was playing. He was playing some kind of... Uh, uh, arm-based fiddle or he was playing the lyre or something like that but as the story goes as Pickett tells it he believes Bach is telling the story um, about Apollo having to show off to get out from the underworld or some such story um, because it's the, the violin part that's kind of interesting in this concerto so it is a concerto grosso the three soloists are two recorders and violin. Strange things are, number one, the two recorder players are not identified as flutes in the uh, orchestration, uh, but instead flauti to echo, echo flutes. And the violin part has two hugely virtuosic passages in the first and third movements, the, the two fast movements. In this case, I listened to a lot of versions of number four, and I really couldn't pick a clear favorite. And I was listening especially for those violin lines. But the, for the first one, since I mentioned Philip Pickett and I mentioned the fact that uh, he recorded um, the concertos with the New London Concert, I thought we'd start just by listening to the themes of all three movements. And I'm going to grab these from the recording by the New London Consort. This was, came out on the Loiseau Lear or Decca label, um, I believe, in the late 80s. I'll, I'll check on that. <laughs> Thank you. 
So there were the themes, the, the openings of all three movements of the Fourth Brandenburg Concerto. Despite the oddities of the violin part and the naming of the two recorders, a Bach basically kind of lays off with the structure of these pieces and does some kind of more typical things, I guess you'd say. Um, you, you should have noticed in the middle movement, the slow movement, how he went back and forth between this concertino group, the, the three soloists, and in this case, the, the two flutes had kind of the melody part, the violin was kind of playing the bass, and then it went to the full ensemble. It was this kind of back and forth, uh, a statement between the soloist and then the, and then the full ensemble. And that's kind of a classic way to write a concerto grosso. In the first movement, um, we have opening theme, we have the recorders playing harmony, which meant that they could play multiple instruments at once. And in the research that, that Pickett does, he, he points out that there was this instrument, uh, and I don't, I'm thinking from my memory of reading this, that it was an instrument that um, you basically put two flutes together, you time together, and you could play two notes at once. So you're playing two instruments, a lot of breath, kind of like smoking two cigarettes at once, I guess. Um, so that was this idea of an echo flute, which, which played into his uh, story about um, the violin antics. So in the middle movement, again, they're playing in harmony, but in the third movement, Bach once again goes back to this idea of, of counterpoint and doing a fugue. And it starts in the bass line. And so it it, it goes, uh, the violin comes in, and then when the flutes play it, they're in unison. They're, they're now one. And uh, just interesting treatment of, of how Bach is playing with these instruments. But that structure, you know, it's not uncommon as the last movement uh, to see the counterpoint come in and um, of course, he still does the, the episode between the theme and then some independent stuff with the soloists. And he's basically written a, a pretty solid concerto grosso. But the thing I want to point out was this, this violin part, which, which always gets me because there's this, there's this thirst I think we want. As soon as I heard that there might be a story behind it, you know, like, what is the story? And why did, why did Bach, uh, number one, write a concerto and include this this really difficult part um, I've heard this performed live before it doesn't always go so well um, the recordings as you might imagine they're always fine because <laughs> you can do multiple takes if it doesn't go well but there are it's just a ton of notes to play and what makes that difficult what is not in the violinists um, best interest is a really fast tempo chosen by the ensemble because you've got so many notes and the faster you're playing the harder it is to get volume out and so that is a challenge when performing this um, you might have noticed that the recorders are very clear in this reading by um, the New London Consort and I think it might be a tad unrealistic in terms of the balance and I'm, I'm always cognizant of that when the conductor is a harpsichord and the harpsichord is really clear or when the this, the director is a violinist and the violin is always clear you know is there preferential treatment in the in the mixing to to highlight those instruments who knows uh, it's it's speculation but what I want to do next is, is give you a couple examples 
of how the solo is taken by a number of different um, performances. We're not going to go crazy. We'll do, how about two each? So I'll give you two versions from the first uh, movement and then two versions from the second. And we'll, we'll just talk about some of the differences and some of those challenges that, that performers have. Um, with number one, the technical challenge of playing so many notes so fast and kind of rising above the texture. And then maybe a little bit of speculation about what Bach was trying to say with this fiendishly difficult part. So the soloist there was Enrico Onofri, and that was Il Giardino Armonico. This is their recording of the Brandenburgs, which came, back, came out on the Teldec label. And it was, um, I believe when this came out, the only thing they recorded were the six Brandenburg concertos. And so Onofri is the violinist, and what I appreciate about this recording in terms of balance is while the recorders are very crystal clear, uh, the violin is clear as well in terms of the texture as it was captured and recorded. And Anover plays all the notes very well. Uh, I think you could get the sense it was a challenge. Um, let's compare that to another reading. Now this next ensemble is known as um, uh, Café Zimmerman. Café Zimmerman's soloist is Pablo Valetti. So as you heard, they, they kind of kicked up the tempo uh, a couple notches, even beyond El Giardino Armonico. Um, their recording, by the way, and a lot of the recordings have very, very good sound quality. I'm not sure how they achieve it, if it's the location where they record or if they've individually mic'd each soloist. But um, especially when you're listening with headphones, the, the recording there of um, Cafe Zimmerman uh, is especially strong. Incidentally, they have not released one collection of the Brandenburgs um, like all these other ensembles. Instead, they did a six-CD uh, reading of Bach concertos, and they included a Brandenburg in each one of those. It's now available as a six-CD set at a discount, and uh, I recommend it um, just because of the 
a lot of the interpretive decisions are, are kind of neat and, and strong and you get a good variety of box work beyond the Brandenburgs and so if you've already invested in the Brandenburgs by somebody else um, you, you get you get another version of them but you also get a lot more in terms of, of the readings including the orchestral suites um, but back to the, the first concerto there uh, first movement of, of Brandenburg 4 the violin part's virtuosic and it's virtuosic in a couple ways the first is just all the notes in the runs um, when you see the music written out it, look, it looks scary because there's just so many notes and of course it requires lots of practice to get that the other way is the this whole idea and I'm not sure if technically it's as, as challenging although when you see it performed it looks challenging that it's it's kind of athletic and it happened in Brandenburg number one where Bach is asking the violinist to play multiple stops so on a violin, there's four strings, and technically, you know, with music, you're playing one string at a time. However, in um, during the Baroque period, uh, complexity was added to violin writing as violin writing became um, more complex. And this idea of, of doing multiple strings at once, for instance, two strings at once. Um, and of course, Bach's sonatas and partitas for solo violin use use double stopping um, what you get here is this idea of, of, of rolling chords we're actually hitting three notes at once um, it's also it's also actually possible to do a quadruple stop but a quadruple stop you you really because of the way the violins made the bow is you're not going to hear all four notes at once and so what you have to do to play those notes is you have to roll um, typically, players will start at the bottom and roll upwards. And so it looks kind of cool. It sounds kind of cool. And that's that's the reason we started with that, that earlier work, um, 1026, because Bach is just littering the page with this, this multiple stopping, which is another way to add virtuosity to um, the playing. Bach himself evidently was a violin player. Uh, I can't say he was a, a good violin player, although he was not famous for being a violin player, but you, you've got to imagine writing like that. Bach either had the had the ability to play that or, or knew it could be played or had access to a violinist who could play like that. And this is where I believe if you're putting some concertos together, you're going to pick your best work. And so it, it certainly may have been that Bach had a number of concertos in his pocket he chose these for a particular reason. My guess is, because of the way this is written out with all those notes and that virtuosity for the violin, that this likely had been performed by Bach, maybe in the context of the, of the Zimmerman Coffee House at some point. Um, but he would have had a reason to maybe even document if this was to be uh, an improvised thing. We'll see that in Concerto Number 5, which has a, a very difficult harpsichord part and what we believe is that Bach wrote out a cadenza, an extended solo for himself that, that he invented and sent that. And, and I'm wondering if that was a little bit of that here. I'm less inclined because of the way it just kind of fits in, but definitely there was this, this um, um, kind of a idea in the back of my mind that Bach is putting forth his best work in this, this really cool solo that... Um, Somebody would have to work hard to pull off. My only question is, somebody would say, why did he write it this way? What is the story? 
So if you if you like this idea of, of Philip Pickett, um, I, I would investigate it. I'm, I can't tell you right now if, if it's been reproduced online, although I think I may have found it uh, in the past. If I can find it, I will include in the show notes because it's worth a reading. Um, I'm going to take two more examples just to give you some uh, idea of what the violin playing was like and how it di- differs. This is going to be the the exciting solos from the third movement of Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Four, and we'll start with Reinhard Gerbel and Musica Antiqua Köln. So at the end of that solo, we get to hear the the another way to add virtuosity, and that's with your right hand, your bowing hand. And so he just has these very fast um, uh, bowing strokes. Um, and you can imagine if this is performed, it really gives the incentive to the player to to throw on the uh, not only the charm but the the uh, excitement level um, as Bach provides the backdrop, the, uh, the structure uh, in terms of notes to really show off. And that's why I find that story so compelling that, that we're looking at a character who is in fact being challenged to show off. I hope you've enjoyed um, getting a glimpse at some of the, the things behind Brandenburg Concerto number 4. Uh, we're going to close out with one last example and I'll give you a little bit more of that, that last movement to listen to. Um, this recording comes from Simon Standage as the violinist, along with Trevor Pinnock in the English concert. This of, uh, is of interest to me because I think Standage does a good job at, at really making the violin part sound taxing, and I don't mean to say that he's um, being overly labored to play it, but I think he really um, is trying to convey the a little bit of the drama involved in this in this and it's also special because it's the first recording of the Brandenburgs that I had and it's it's the one that I sort of um, helped me fall in love with these concertos by Bach so thank you for listening I'm your host John Hendren and in our last excerpt it comes from Trevor Pinnock and the English concert this first appeared on the Dietschy archive label <laughs>